0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. On January 5th, a special runoff election in the state of Georgia will determine who will fill the state's two seats in the United States Senate and which political party, Republican or Democrat, will control the upper chamber of Congress. The runoff election will be the final act in a tumultuous election season in which the political parties have offered starkly different visions for the role of government and, in the context we'll be talking about today, for the future direction of America's energy system and how that system will impact our environment. In January, the country will have a new president who offers a progressive energy vision, yet to enact some of the more ambitious parts of his energy plan, Joe Biden will need support from the Senate. George's runoff election will help clarify the degree to which Biden may get that support. On today's podcast, I'm welcoming back two guests whose work focuses on the balance of power in Washington and on the legal tools available to presidents to pursue their agendas. Bethany Davis-Knoll is Litigation Director at the Institute for Policy Integrity at New York University School of Law. Richard Revez is Dean Emeritus at the NYU School of Law and Director of the Institute for Policy Integrity. The two will take a look at the options available to Biden to pursue his energy agenda, with or without help from the Senate. Bethany and Ricky, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Andy, it's great to be back.
1: Thanks, Andy, it's great to be here.
0: So Ricky, let's start with you. Uh, There's been a lot of talk recently in the media uh, about the Georgia runoff election for two contested Senate seats. In general, what advantage would a friendly Democratic majority in the Senate bring to President Biden? And, and how would the lack of a majority tie his hands?
2: Um, those are great questions. So let me uh, divide this, my answer into four categories and go in order of uh, the timing when the issue will arise and become relevant. So first, a Democratic majority in the Senate would help uh, President Biden Vice President Harris in the process of um, executive branch appointments, there are roughly 1,200 positions in the federal government that require Senate confirmation. Uh, we typically focus on the cabinet, but there are sub cabinet positions and many other positions in cabinet departments and agencies. And that process will go a lot more smoothly uh, with a Democratic majority. Um, otherwise, um, there's going to have to be uh, negotiating over the agenda and the order in which uh, these. Um, the hearings take place, and the floor votes take place, and even though some Republican senators have indicated that they would uh, help um, President Biden uh, form his cabinet, it's not clear um, how much, um, whether this cooperation would extend to lower level positions and so on. It also might make it necessary for President Biden to um, discuss appointments with uh, Republican senators to a greater extent than would be the case if Democrats control the Senate. So it would make a big difference there. Second, um, there's going to be a significant uh, stimulus spending bill uh, to aid the economic recovery that's um, a byproduct of the very serious uh, public health crisis that we're uh, uh, living through now. And in terms of the uh, subject matter of this podcast, uh, Democratic control of the Senate would make it more likely that a bigger chunk of infrastructure spending is devoted to um, uh, clean energy projects, so for example, um, transmission lines that bring renewable um, electricity to uh, places where there's demand for it, uh, charging stations for electric vehicles, um, energy storage um, to facilitate the integration of renewables into the grid. Um, my sense is that there's going to be some clean energy infrastructure spending, no matter which party controls the Senate, but I would expect that there'll be more of it if there's democratic control of the Senate. Uh, third category involves efforts to undo um, Trump administration regulations. Um, uh, uh, What I have in mind here, Congressional Review Act disapprovals is a big topic and we can come back to it later um, if you'd like. And then the fourth category is significant substantive legislation. Um, So for example, a um, comprehensive effort to um, uh, control greenhouse gases and to promote a transition to a clean energy economy. Um, you know the, the probability of that happening in the next Congress is probably reasonably low regardless of which party ends up controlling the Senate because in the Senate, uh, one would e- this legislation would either need to get the support of 60 senators to overcome the filibuster rule or would need to uh, have the support of a majority of the senators to um, get rid of the filibuster. And I don't think getting rid of the filibuster is such a momentous thing that I don't think can be done on a 50 50 split because typically there'll be some senator of a party would, um, would would not go along. So I think really comprehensive, substantive legislation to address climate change and to do something significant on the clean energy front beyond infrastructure spending might have to await the 2022 elections when it might become possible if the Democratic Party picks up additional Senate seats and retains control of the House.
0: You know, I want to go to that third point uh, for just a moment that you just mentioned, that was undoing Trump era regulations. And the two of you were on the podcast just this last July when we talked about some of the legal vulnerabilities of Trump's energy and environmental policies. And how a future president might exploit those vulnerabilities to to overturn trump rules so so this seems to be an area where a simple friendly majority in the senate could be particularly helpful to biden can you explain the vulnerabilities and tell us which trump rules could be overturned
2: well i mean uh technically any trump rules that um were promulgated in the last 60 legislative days of this congress can be overturned um now this is a rule that's very easy to state and hard to compute exactly when that, we don't know when that window opened because we won't know until Congress completes its legislative days. But most people think that this will be sometime in June, probably. It was um, around mid-June in 2016. So there are a lot of significant rules um, that have already been finalized and there are some that haven't been finalized yet and that might be finalized. Uh, So for example, EPA's... um, uh, repeal of the methane rule for oil and gas installations is one such rule. Um, it's decision to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for drilling. Um, there is another example. There are two rules that I think would be very good candidates for CRA disapproval that haven't actually been finalized yet but the administration said they would. Um, what they call a science transparency rule which would make it very difficult for EPA to rely on epidemiological studies to justify um, um, regulation, and a rule um, on how cost-benefit analysis for Clean Air Act regulation should be conducted, which would make it difficult to count the co-benefits of regulation, and it would have a very um, negative effect um, in connection with uh, both the regulation of local pollutants and also of greenhouse gases. So those are some examples, but there are many others, and, um, and and the environmental and energy areas are not the only areas that have candidates for CRA disapprovals. Um, now, control of the Senate will make a difference here, um, in part because um, if Democrats don't control the Senate, they still need to get 50 votes plus um, the vice president's tiebreak in order to um, disapprove something. So for any if they, they don't control the Senate, for any rule disapproval to be a possibility, uh, Democrats would have to pick Republican votes. Um, to get to 50. And then we need to pick up additional Republican votes to make up for any Democratic votes they might lose on a particular CRA. And they could- To
0: clarify, the CRA only requires 50. There's, there's no 60-vote requirement for that. There to... is
2: no 60-vote requirement for the CRA. There's no filibuster rule. Now, um, so 50 is a magic number, um, but having 50 Democratic senators doesn't guarantee that all of them would vote for CRA in these rules. My guess is that probably at least 48 would, sometimes 50 would. but um, Democrats might need to pick up some Republican senators from time to time. And if they don't have 50, they'll always need to pick up at least some Republican senators to get to 50 and then some more to make up for any Democratic senators they might lose. And in some cases, they won't lose any, but sometimes they might. Uh, Now, not controlling the Senate also will slow down the CRA disapproval process because if Democrats control the Senate, they'll control the agenda of the Senate and they'll be able to bring the CRA disapprovals before the Senate um, in whatever time and order they choose. If they don't, Republicans could bottle CRA disapproval resolutions in committee for up to 20 days, calendar days. Um, and after 20 days, um, the disapproval um, resolution can be brought to the floor on the vote of 30 senators, So, which presumably wouldn't be a problem. That basically uh, Republicans could delay every every resolution twenty days by basically letting them sit, let, letting them sit in committees and not having the committees act, and if Democrats control the Senate, um, things could, you know, this delay wouldn't uh, wouldn't be an issue.
0: Now I, I'm recalling our conversation in July when it came up the fact that uh, to use the CRA, the new president would actually need to make use of that during the first sixty legislative days. Of his of his office, right? So that twenty day delay that you just mentioned would be significant and, and potentially a, a big barrier. It sounds like
2: it could be significant. I mean, how much of a barrier? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, it might make it you know important to actually present as many CRA disapproval resolutions uh, as quickly as possible, so the twenty days start counting. Um, but uh, but it would slow things down, and it might mean that fewer. Um, regulations end up uh, getting disapproved under the CRA.
0: Now, there's another issue also here that we've talked about in the past, and that's that even if the CRA is generally available, that the President Biden has, uh, you know, uh, enough Senate seats to to push this through, he also has a decision to make whether he actually wants to use the tool. Um, And that's because there's a certain bandwidth limitation that he has to take into account just how much the Senate can get done. So uh, what is that limitation? And and do you think Biden would ask the Senate to actually use the CRA and why?
2: I think, I mean, some of these rules are so obnoxious and so terrible and so detrimental to the Biden administration's ability to get its own regulatory agenda going. So, for example, if EPA finalized its science rule and its cost benefit rule for air rules, it would... um, those rules would have to be repealed for notice and comment rulemaking. That could take quite a bit of time before uh, substantive regulations can be put in place that rely on good analysis. So I think it's a very attractive tool and I think uh, it would make sense to be able to just clear the underbrush of some of this really, really bad um, uh, regulatory policy quickly. Now, obviously this would compete, I mean, any Senate time, and it, it requires 10 hours of Senate debate per CRA. Uh, Disapproval um, resolution uh, would take up time that could otherwise be devoted to confirming um, executive branch officials. If Democrats don't control um, the Senate, uh, the agenda, the control of the agenda for these confirmations would be uh, in the hands of Mitch McConnell. And, you know, he would do, um, you know, whatever he thought was politically expedient, I suppose, for him and the Republican Party, which might. Not be um, to uh, prioritize uh, these confirmations in the way that the Democratic majority would, but um, so, but in any event, there there may be some trade off between Senate time devoted to the CRA and Senate time devoted to uh, confirming executive
0: branch officials. So let's let's be clear on this, and, and this is something you mentioned a few moments ago. Even a friendly, filibuster-proof Senate majority is no guarantee of legislative success. And, and I want to bring up the example of the 2009 Waxman-Markey carbon cap and trade bill, uh, which passed the House but never made it to the floor in the Senate, even though the Democrats had, I believe, 57 or 58 seats in that very early part of the, the Obama administration. So, so what does that experience uh, say about Biden's real chance to move big legislative packages related to energy and the environment and climate, uh, you know, during his administration.
2: Right. So I'll carve out infrastructure spending. I talked about it, I think both parties probably would come together on some um, on some bill. Uh, but in terms of something that looks like an economy-wide approach to do with greenhouse gases, um, I think the prospects in the modern, in the current world of coming up with a, um, a legislative solution to get 60 votes are, are slim. Um, because the parties are so polarized and so deeply divided on this issue. I think if Democrats had like 52 or 53 Senate seats, um, I think the more likely scenario would be that they would decide to eliminate the Senate filibuster and then pass broad legislation on a simple majority. But I don't see that as being a likely possibility, even on a 50-50 Senate. And it's obviously impossible if Democrats don't control the Senate.
0: Bethany, I'd like to turn to you here. Um, You know, we've been talking about the legislative process, about uh, Biden working alongside the Senate to get some of his agenda, his energy and environmental agenda through. But again, if he can't rely on the legislative process, if he can't rely on Congress, he has to turn to regulation and to the courts. And, And this gets to the heart of the work that the two of you do. Can you explain how Biden might use the regulatory agencies such as, for example, the EPA and the courts to push his agenda through?
1: Yeah, I mean, in comparison to legislation with regulation, a president just needs to direct his agency's priorities. You know, as long as statutory authority exists for the agency to act, then the agencies will simply need to follow the rules. You know, the procedural and statutory rules that apply to those agencies in order to implement those policies um you know there's the notice and comment requirement in the administrative procedure act the requirement that agencies give a reasoned explanation for their decision and the requirement that they act within their statutory authority so you know this move which we'll likely see with the biden administration towards using agencies to make policy has been going on for decades and you know definitely we saw it with the trump administration um and In the past, in study after study before President Trump, scholars have found that agency decisions were upheld in court about 70% of the time. So this kind of win rate generally supports the view that presidents can generally count on their policies being upheld in court and can use their agencies to make policy. But of course, the win rate for the Trump administration has been starkly different, as we've shown in a tracker on Policy Integrity's website. Um, But that... That just reinforces my point. As long as agencies act uh, within the bounds of their statutes and follow these basic procedural rules, they will, they can count on winning in court, you know, and that's the following these basic procedural rules just isn't something that we saw in many of the rules coming out of the Trump administration.
0: So it's really important to, to, to make sure that those those uh, rules uh, hold hold legal water essentially. Right. Yeah. OK. So uh, assuming for the moment that Biden doesn't have the support of a friendly Senate, then how might he also use the courts to roll back Trump's major, major regulatory efforts? And I'm thinking about the Clean Power Plan uh, replacement, uh, methane rules, uh, weaker car fuel efficiency standards, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean. All these rules, all these rollbacks are in litigation right now, and we're still months away from a decision on several of these rules, you know, with the methane rules and the weakened vehicle emissions rule and so on. And so the Biden administration will have the option of asking the courts to put those cases on pause while it reconsiders and then potentially rewrites the rules. You know, alternatively, it could decide to go forward with the litigation after it makes sort of a judgment call about how likely it is that a court would strike down the Trump era rule.
0: So Ricky, if Biden succeeds in rolling back, for example, the ACE rule, which is the replacement for the Clean Power Plan, does that mean that the Clean Power Plan would be back in effect?
2: Well, the Clean Power Plan would technically be back in effect, but the deadlines for various actions have passed, so the agency would at the very least have to redo the deadlines. And um, in my sense is that um, You know, energy markets have uh, evolved significantly beyond where they were when the clean power plan was promulgated. So um, uh, the agency, one way or the other, would presumably look at into how to um, come up with a modern replacement. Uh, That was, uh, you know, both uh, responded to the current state of the markets and also uh, had more influential targets given um, uh, the Biden-Harris goals.
0: So Beth, in the over the last, uh, I guess it's a couple of weeks or so, the uh, it's come out that the Bureau of Land Management may be auctioning off oil leases in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, and that might actually happen. According to the calendar, it could potentially happen just a couple of days before Trump would leave office. If these leases are sold, would they survive under Biden? Meaning, could he not respect those leases, or, or however that would that would play out?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first question is whether these lease sales will even happen. You know, the um, decision to put these up for auction was only published on the 17th, November 17th, and it provides for 30 days of comment. And after the agency considers those the, the comments that are put in on that on that proposal, it needs to publish a notice of sale 30 days before the actual sale so if you look at the calendar, it only has a couple of days to consider comments before it publishes the notice of sale. If this administration wants to complete the sale before the inauguration, and that that would just be real evidence that it wasn't that the agency wasn't considering comments. And um, you know we have we have seen a lot of pushback in court where agencies aren't taking the notice and comment rules seriously. Um, meanwhile, there's pending litigation over the environmental review that the administration conducted over this decision, and there are lots of other steps in the process, you know, including permits and so on that would be required to go through review. And I would definitely wouldn't say that the Biden administration would, you know, not honor a legal lease, but it would, it could potentially take the environmental review of these actions more seriously.
0: So. Ricky, let's turn to Biden's uh, likely regulatory efforts or focus. What new regulations do you expect him to develop early in his term?
2: Well, um, on the climate change front, um, I would expect him to focus on um, vehicle emission standards. Um, I mean, the Obama standards only went through model year 2025, which is now right around the corner. So even if they still were in effect, we would have to start focusing on the future. And, and because that is... Um, The biggest single sector of the economy in terms of greenhouse gas emissions that I expect that will be a a, a serious focus. Uh, Greenhouse gas emissions from power plants will be a focus. I would expect that the Biden administration would try to uh, extend greenhouse gas regulation to other um, industrial sectors, maybe refineries, maybe cement plants, maybe others. And we'll basically look at large sources of greenhouse gas emissions and uh, and see where uh, significant reductions uh, can take place. Um, There's statutory authority to regulate in these areas, and I would expect that EPA will be ambitious in its use of these statutory authorities. Uh, Also, uh, there'll be regulations in other parts of the government, um, energy efficiency standards um, out of the energy department. Um, The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has recently shown some interest in potential carbon pricing in wholesale markets. Um, uh, disclosure requirements by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I I would imagine it'll be sort of an across-the-government effort, but at EPA, it will focus on the big sources of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So, uh, Bethany, uh, also in our conversation in July, uh, the two of you actually emphasized the importance of the new president getting started right away in developing new rules. You really emphasized the importance of this. What will Biden need to do to get started and to ensure that whatever he enacts will survive beyond his presidency because that's really been the issue with regulation in the last two with the last two presidents they come up with the regulations and the new president threatens or actually does uh, undo some of those rules
1: yeah the threat of rollbacks is real and we're seeing it now again um you know, there's going to be a new era of rollback starting soon. Obviously, that's what we've been talking about. Um, so that means that there's intense time pressure on the beginning of a new president's term, you know, because the president can't guarantee that he'll win the next term. So he has to plan for the fact that the regulations need to come out as soon as possible. And um, the reason to do that is because the president wants to make sure the rule gets reviewed in court and with a, you know, a DOJ that he controls sort of defending the rule. And we want to also make sure, you know, a president would also want to make sure that the rule was implemented. So it's less easy to suspend it or put the deadlines off like we saw when the um, Trump administration came in. So, you know, this is this time pressure means that a president needs to hit the ground running right now and have major rules promulgated probably within the first couple of years.
0: And if that doesn't happen, does that just mean essentially that anything that uh, the president does, if it's still in the courts, it's it's all game for a, a, a president, particularly one from an opposing party to, to undo it in the future?
1: Yeah, it's whiplash time.
2: Well, but the president, I mean, obviously, this is all different if... Um, a Democratic president is elected in 2024. It's difficult for one term presidents to um, have their major regulatory priorities stick, but it's not difficult for two term presidents to accomplish that as long as they get the the work mostly done in the first term. You know, I mean, the Obama administration was ambitious both both terms. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just that the things from the first term stuck and the things from the second term ended up caught up in litigation. But obviously, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, a lot of the things in the second term would have stuck too.
1: Yeah. And the, you know, if, if there's a second democratic administration, then the first couple of years of that term are a good time to promulgate rules that, you know, there'll be enough time to get them implemented in that four year term and to get them reviewed in court. It's just that right now, nobody knows. So it's good to plan and think about this time pressure.
0: All right, so Beth, let, let me ask you, let me ask you one final question here. So, during the Trump administration, states and cities have had to to really step up themselves to act on climate change. Do you think that under Biden, they'll continue to work in the same way?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous potential to cut greenhouse gas emissions at the local level. Many cities and states have set aggressive targets. You know, there was a lot of attention paid to this after the Trump, you know, after President Trump won. And there's still a lot that can be done there. You know, we've got cutting emissions on the grid and in buildings, building efficiency. And, you know, focusing on state and local level emissions is also a good way to make sure that harmful local air pollutants, which disproportionately harm already disadvantaged communities remains the focus. So there's a lot of progress that can be made on this front and it makes sense to continue that work aggressively.
0: Bethany and Ricky, thanks for talking. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for
0: having us. Today's guests have been Bethany Davis Knoll and Richard Devez of the Institute for Policy Integrity at the New York University School of Law. For more energy policy discussions and insights, check out the archive of Energy Policy Now podcasts on the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website. The site also has a wealth of news, blogs, and research covering the gamut of energy and environmental policy topics. And you can get updates from the Climate Center delivered to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.